Talk Radio for inquisitive people. Solace Radio, Ponte Vista, Colorado. Well, it's an honor. Uh, it's an honor to be here. Uh, it was an honor to be called to be a, a music leader here uh, so many months ago. Uh, I don't know if you've ever heard the story. I'm going to share the brief version of it. I was in Israel back in April, and I was sitting with Michael Rydelnik, who some of you may know. I had I had actually been contracted to go with Moody Church in Chicago and to lead the music for their tour of Israel. And uh, I was in the Golan Heights at a coffee shop, which I'll always, if I, there's a coffee shop, I'll find it. And I'm in the Golan Heights at a, in a coffee shop, and Michael Rydelnik turns to me and asks me a very faithful question, which was, uh, have you ever heard of Irvine, California? And I said, yeah, I work for Greg Laurie, and Greg Laurie is planning a church in Irvine, And so I'm in Irvine every Thursday uh, and every third Sunday at Harvest OC, as they call it now. And I said, yeah, I'm very familiar with Irvine. And he goes, well, have you ever heard of a guy named Larry Feldman? And I said, yeah, I've I've heard of Larry Feldman. I came here about four years ago with a friend of mine who's on staff with Chosen People Ministries and uh, named Justin Crone. And I said, yeah, I know who he is. And I've visited his place before. And uh, and he says, well, he's looking for a music leader. And I said, well. Uh, if I find one, I'll let you know. <laughs> I work about 70 hours a week as it is. And I said, the last thing I need is another job. And, and he said, uh, well, would you go and just see them? Just go just go and see them. Uh, there's a worship leader who has to leave and they're going to be kind of sort of left in the lurch with, uh, in a few weeks. And uh, so maybe you can go and maybe consult them. And so I came to Shuva quite frankly, uh, just simply to try to consult and try to, if there's anything by way of operational knowledge, which I could give to the community. Uh, uh, and then Michael said something that really stung, which he says this. He says, Steve, these are your people. And what are you doing in order to uh, minister to your people, Israel? And he says, you know, all the mega churches in the world, that's fantastic that you can work with those guys and you have access to people whom it takes uh, months in order to get appointments with, and you can call them and they answer your phone. But what are you doing to minister to your people? And I said, Michael, that's a dirt. That was dirty. I'll go and see if I can consult them. So I went and I came and quite frankly, I fell in love with you. Okay. And, uh, and I, so then the next challenge was my wife, Misty, you got to come see them. Steven, you work already too much. You don't need another job. It doesn't matter. I don't care what it pays. I don't care any of these things. It's not that she's anti-Semitic. It's just that she's a guardian of my time, uh, not just my time with her, but also my time with my children and these things. But to be quite frank, she came as well. And after the second week, I think second or third time that my wife visited, uh, she turned to me and she said, Stephen, these people want to hear from you. And I think you already know what you need to do. Tell them you're going to go work for them. And so here we are. And, and I hope that you enjoy the music. I don't know that there's been any change. I really wasn't here much before I showed up, but but we're just simply trying to honor the Lord to our department and we're trying to uh, lift him up in a way that prepares people's hearts to receive a message preached. And so that's really the goal of our music department. Thank you. The title of this message this morning is Book of the Law Found. And I'll tell you where we're going to be in the Bible. And we don't have the PowerPoint this week. And uh I'm sorry that we don't have that. So uh, if you brought your Bibles, uh, we're going to be in 2 Kings 22.3. If you didn't bring your Bible, perhaps you could take notes. That would, that would make me feel good if I saw some people writing some things down and it wasn't on a blue card while I was preaching. Those are typically the complaint cards. Uh, we're going to be in 2 Kings 22, starting in, in verse 3. And it's an inventive title. It's actually the title of the chapter of that section of, of, of uh, 2 Kings uh, it's the title that my Bible says, Hilkiah finds the book of the law. And so that's where we're going to be this morning, 2 Kings 22, starting in verse 3. Uh, but before that, I'm just going to let you know so you can turn there. If you don't have a Bible or if you didn't bring your Bible, I understand that oftentimes the scriptures go by so fast and, and they come here and they go there. And, and, and we're going to talk a little bit about the book of the law this morning. And so there's a, I can understand where you might not think, well, why bring my Bible? Because it's all up there for me anyway. Uh, but the Bible for me has become a, a completely other thing than just a thing that I bring to church in order to turn when the preacher's preaching here or the rabbi's teaching there. 
It's it's become part of my life and I really don't go anywhere without my Bible. If I hear somebody preaching, I usually take out a pen and I'll make a note in my Bible. Okay, Uh, and here's a here's a here's my Bible. Right. And so uh, we I teach a Bible study and this is how if you go to my Bible study, you'll see in Riverside, you'll see everybody's Bible looks like this. We start in Matthew because that because it's mostly Christians that show up who go to like churches. They're not Messianic. Although I do have a lot of Jewish believers that go to my Bible study now. But uh, but we start and we just read. And then when we finish the New Testament, the Brit Hadashah, then we start with the Torah and we start reading in the Torah. Right. And and I, I teach them to read the Bible just like uh, just like a first grader. You know, you teach them to read and you say you take the pencil and you just go across. I just say, take a highlighter. You don't highlight what's important. It's all important. And you highlight it. And you say, well, then if you highlight everything, why would you highlight it? Because then you come back and you read it immediately after that with a ballpoint pen and you start doing a word study. So you read it first and you'll be amazed if you ever do this. And if you leave here today and you say, I don't know that I got anything out of that guy. I wish we would have had another speaker, a professional, not a worship music guy. But if you don't get anything at all, you'll be amazed what happens on the second time through. We read it through first with a highlighter, just like a first grader, highlighting everything. And you say, OK, I get it. But then what happens is you pick up the ballpoint pen and you stop and you slow down. And it's amazing what the Lord shows you when you slow down. And I think this is what the Bible talks about, meditating on the word, not just simply thinking about it later, but literally thinking about it as you're reading it and slowing down. And isn't it so very difficult to slow down in our lives? What I found is that the culture of church has become so easy. It's become so easy for us to go to a congregation and and to fit in. And quite frankly, uh, uh, churches and congregations, uh, their leadership, they're always having these types of discussions or of how easy can we make it? Like, how can how 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 professional can we make the lighting? Not that there's anything wrong with good lighting. And and how how easy can we make this music fit? And and not that there's anything wrong with being professional and, and doing things at a high level of excellence, because it is, after all, as unto the Lord. So why should we not give our best to the Lord? Nothing wrong with planning. They talk about how comfortable can we make these chairs so that when the people are, you know, what I'm saying and and how can we make sure that everything feels right so that really they don't have to do anything. They just have to simply light in and sit down and then they get a good message and then they get up and they leave and and they feel good. They feel good about themselves and they feel good about the Lord and they feel good about this congregation. And there's so many churches around the country. And I'm not saying that we should make it hard where we should put obstacles in the parking lot and we should put offensive people as greetings so that they really have to earn their way in here. And but what I'm saying is, is that it seems that the coming into a congregation oftentimes can it's so fit to be so easy for us that we can become biblically functionally illiterate. Biblically, functionally illiterate. I've been in the music business for 20 years plus now. I know I look like I, was, I sleep in formaldehyde every night, but I'm 43 years old. And I was almost 21 years old when I became a believer. And within a year later, I had a record deal at a Christian record company. And and uh, the songs that we wrote did well on the radio and ended up having 10 number one Christian radio songs, was nominated for five Grammy Awards and and so every year we'd get nice clothes and we'd drive down to the Staples Center or down to the Shrine Auditorium or we'd go to Madison Square Garden, wherever the Grammys were that year. And we'd we'd all go together as a band and see if we won. And we never won. And I'm still bitter about it. <laughs> I always say, always a Grammy made, never a Grammy. I came to a point and I made six albums with this band. Big Tent Revival was the name of the band. I made six albums with this band. I came to a point at about four albums deep where I realized that I had written a lot of songs and they had become very successful. But the songs and the source information for those songs had come primarily from sitting under the preaching of some amazing communicators. I went to Bellevue Baptist Church in Memphis, Tennessee. When I lived in Memphis, there was 26,000 members of Bellevue Baptist. 
They say it's even bigger today. The pastor was a guy named Dr. Adrian Rogers, a fantastic communicator. And I would take notes and I would think, well, that would be a great song. And I'd write songs about it. And sure enough, they turned out to be great ideas that I got from a from a great communicator. And then I moved to Nashville and I met other great communicators. And as I became more and more successful in the Christian music business, I had communicators that actually were calling me. The first time that I met James Dobson, I was a very young artist, and I asked James Dobson, I asked actually a person that worked for him, I said, can I get a photograph with Dr. Dobson? And the lady said, no, I'm sorry, uh, he doesn't take photographs with recording artists. And I said, well, why is that? And she said, well, recently there's several recording artists, Christian recording artists, who've been involved in scandal, and he really doesn't want his picture associated with people that he doesn't really know. And I felt really, quite frankly, offended at that. And, you know, well, he had me come sing it as devotional for focus on the family. I mean, you would think that that would be an endorsement in and of itself. But he was trying to protect the ministry because he didn't want to be associated with people whose fame and their charisma and the fact that they could sell a record had gotten them to a platform that their that their characters couldn't keep them. And so I walked away somewhat offended, but also, quite frankly, somewhat honored. And so I was very honored when five years later I was playing the same devotional for his staff and a person comes to me, not the same person I talked to earlier, and said, hey, Dr. Dobson would like to take his photograph with you. I said, well, if it's okay, could you tell Dr. Dobson that several preachers have really fallen into scandal in the last few years? (laughs) And really, I don't want to risk my reputation. No, I said, absolutely, I'd love to, I'm honored. We took the photograph. But all the time, I had been highly successful, but was functionally illiterate. Because I really wasn't reading the Bible on a daily basis. Pretty amazing, isn't it? How successful that we can become. And it's because our harbingers for success are oftentimes, more than we want to admit, not as spiritual as we think that they are. And the way that we gauge whether the Lord is blessing us or giving us success, sometimes for believers, that that can be so sophisticated that it almost seems righteous. And what happens is when we read the word of the Lord, we realize that the, the God has a whole other economy. What he calls success is sometimes he sends a person to preach to a people for his whole life, and yet they will never repent. And we see this when we read scripture. So now all of a sudden we have to gauge our success as ministers and as believers by a whole other metric. And we don't even get that if we just grow up in the culture of church. And when I say church, I understand I'm in a Messianic congregation. So if you'll give me an umbrella of grace, I'm going to talk about the church at large. That is the the body of Messiah. All who believe that Jesus, Yeshua, is the Messiah. I was in South Africa about 20. Oh, Misty, we've been married for how 18 years in December. My wife and I have been married. I was in South Africa a few months before we got married because I I couldn't afford the wedding. And so I had to go down and work. So I spent a month in South Africa playing a concert every night and came home. And at the time, it was a it was against the law. You couldn't trade the uh, rand, which is the currency of South Africa. And uh, and so I had to get paid in U.S. cash in South Africa. And can you imagine being on a plane in New York City and having to change airports on a city bus, holding one month's worth of concert proceeds on your person. I can't believe they didn't stop me thinking I was a drug dealer. I was in South Africa and I was at a pizza hut, which is funny, isn't it? I'm in a pizza hut in South Africa and everything. When you go to Europe, everything's different. In the United States, everything is huge. You want a large Coke? It's huge. It's it's, it's like a keg of Coke. And, and, and people will drink it and then they go back and they get the free refill. In Europe, there's no free refill. You go down to Africa, there's no free refill. You want another Coke? Okay, well, you buy another Coke. That's why most Europeans that you know, when they order a Coke, even to this day, living in the United States, knowing it's going to be huge, knowing that you can have as many refills as you want, they won't put ice in their cup. You ever, you ever had dinner with a European and say, man, that's weird. They don't put ice in their cup. Well, it's because where they're from, You got to fill it up and you can't fill it up with filler, which is what ice is to them. Here I was in South Africa. A large pizza in South Africa is is about that big. It's not a large like we were expecting. I was with a group of South Africans and I was with my band and uh, there was what we called Klingons, which if you're Star Trek fans, that's not what I'm talking about. Klingons are those people when there's a group of people and somebody else is paying, they're clinging on. 
So in South Africa with a band and some promoters and some pastors and a bunch of Klingons, and uh, and we're sitting at a pizza hut, and this lady who we called five by five because she was five feet tall and five feet wide, and a uh, short little South African lady came to me, and she said, uh, what do you want to order? And I said, okay, well, I told her what I wanted to order, somewhat of a complicated order. I'm an American. Americans order complicated. They want a little extra of this and a little less of that. And then, of course, the next person, complicated order. Next person, complicated order. At the end of it, we're like 15 people deep. I turned to the South African guy standing next to me, and I said to him, I said, she's never going to remember all this. And he said, she will remember every bit of That's my Afrikaans. It's only as good as it gets. I said, every bit of it? Every bit of it. I said, why is that? He says, because she can't read. I said, she can't read? He goes, no, she can't read. No way. So she'll remember every bit of it. Why? Because when you can't read, you have to rely on your memory. And I said, okay, I'll bet you. I shouldn't have done it because when the order showed up, everything was perfect. He said, you see, intelligence and literacy are not the same thing. There are some people who are highly literate, and it's just like, do you have any common sense at all? How many PhDs do you have? And there's other people, believe it or not, I've met them, South Africa, and I'm sure here in the United States. They can't read at all, but they're highly intelligent. And they learn to function in the culture and they learn to, to do things that is amazing. They can't even read. Now, if we had asked her to read us the menu, the lady who'd been working there for several years, she couldn't do it. Why? Because at the end of the day, while she may be highly intelligent, she's also completely illiterate. And she found a way to function. And believe it or not, that's the way many believers live out their faith in the Lord. And you know this because you ask them to share it. Hey, share your faith with me. And it's amazing how they stumble and they stammer because they've learned how to function. They know when to come in. They've learned how to say the Shema. They've, they've learned how to stand when you stand and sit when you sit and look up and read the lyrics and sing the songs. And, and they know that the pushki box is in them. The first time I heard the pushki box, I was like, what's a pushki? I grew up in a Southern Baptist church. My mom's Jewish and she wasn't religious. Well, it's the offering. Oh, why don't they just say that? Well, because it's not Jewish. And so here's this lady. And here are so many believers and they learn how to do what they do and they live out their lives coming in and coming out of the congregation on Saturday and then the holidays. And they learn they learn. How, but but if you ask them biblical questions, they can't give you answers. And perhaps I'm talking to some of you. Statistically, I'm talking to almost all of you. And you ask people, how long have you been a believer? And they'll tell you and they'll tell you their testimony, which is how long, which is generally the, t- the day when they said, you know what? That's it. I'm turning and I'm turning to Yeshua. I'm trusting in him and him alone. They'll tell you their testimony, but they can tell you little of what has changed after that. They just learn how to become functionally illiterate within a congregational environment. But that in itself is not the great commission. The Lord does not command for the world to come to, to church as much as he commands the church to go to the world. While it is important that you come here, the reason why you're coming here is to learn things that you can leave here and share with others. And so I ask you a rhetorical question, that says I don't want your answer right now, but I ask you a rhetorical question, when was the last time that you shared your faith with somebody outside of this room? When was the last time that you led somebody to a point where you said, you know, we could pray right now and you could lead somebody into a prayer where they would say, Lord, I turn from my sin and I turn to you now. And and Lord, I'm committing to follow you because of what your son Yeshua has done for me. When was the last person? And do you have that person in your mind that you led to the Lord? Because that is why we are here. Many of you, you're in Orange County, so I assume that some of you are business people. So you know that the purpose of every business, the purpose of every organization is performance. The purpose of every organization is performance. And so you say to yourself, well, how well am I performing from my time spent in this organization? And it may not be the fault of the organization. It may just simply be the fault of a culture which you've been born again into, so to speak. It's not the first time that this has ever happened. As a matter of fact, the reason why I want to speak on this morning's chapter, 2 Kings 22, is because this actually happened in the history of Israel. Did you know this? Where people had become highly functional, biblically illiterate. They were doing all of the things that you should do in a congregation. And yet they were missing one essential part, 
which is the word of the Lord. So let's read now. Second Kings 23. Let's just start in verse three. My Bible says Hilkiah finds the book of the law. Now it came to pass in the 18th year of King Josiah that the king sent Shaphan the scribe, the son of Azaliah, the son of Meshuliam, to the house of the Lord, saying, Go up to Hilkiah the high priest, that he may count the money which has been brought into the house of the Lord. They had a pushki box too, which the doorkeepers have gathered from the people, and let them deliver it into the hand of those doing the work who are the overseers in the house of the Lord. Let them give it to those who were in the house of the Lord doing the work to repair the damages of the house to the carpenters and the builders and the masons and to buy timber and hewn stone to repair the house. Verse 7, however, there be no accounting made of them. There's no need for that. For the money delivered into their hands has been dealt with faithfully. Then Hilkiah the priest said to Shaphan the scribe, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan and he read it. So Shaphan, the scribe, went to the king, bringing the king the word, saying, your servants have gathered the money that was found in the house and have delivered it into the hand of those who do the work, who oversee the house of the Lord. And then Shaphan, the scribe, showed the king, saying, Hilkiah, the priest, has given me a book. And Shaphan read it before the king. And now it happened when the king heard the words of the book of the law that he tore his clothes. And then the king commanded Hilkiah, the priest, Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, Achbor, the son of Micaiah, Shaphan, the scribe, and Azaiah, the servant of the king, saying, go and inquire of the Lord for me, for the people and for all of Judah concerning these words of the book that has been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is aroused against us because our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book to do according to all that is written concerning us. I am so glad that the high school students are here today because in essence, this was a young group of guys. There's a time when Israel had lost the most important document and furniture in all of history. I don't know about you, but my wife and I uh, love to watch these cable TV shows. We like one called Pawn Stars. Have you ever seen Pawn Stars? Where people bring in things uh, to a pawn shop. And uh, they say, well, I have this little thing right here. And I don't know, my grandmother uh, had this. And she always kept it in the china cabinet. Uh, uh, what do you, do you think it's worth it? And they would look at it and they go, well, do you know what this is? Uh, well, this is a so-and-so, such-and-such, and and, uh, I better bring in an expert to see if this is a real one, because if it was real, it could be worth $20,000. And the people would freak out, and that's good TV. I mean, I'm sitting there watching that going, what kind of junk do I have around my house? And and I'm thinking, when can my parents pass on? Because I know they have some of this stuff in their house. I'm just kidding. They don't have anything. So we're praying that they just stay alive and get some of that stuff. No. Uh, We like that show. Uh, There's another show that my wife and I like to watch, which is Storage Wars. Have you seen Storage Wars? Where people don't pay their bills on their storage units. And so then guys come and then they bid on storage units. And they can only stand outside the storage unit. And they can look in and they bid on just what you can see. And the things that they find in there. And I say, man, i got to find out where there's a storage unit guy that didn't pay his bill. There's some good stuff in there. And, of course, the classic, I mean, that's uh, not really for classy people. I mean, pawn shops and storage units. So the classy one that we really like is what? Antiques Roadshow. That's PBS. That's classy stuff. They're not finding things in storage units. They're, they're bringing in Chippendale chairs, you know. I mean, they're bringing in the real stuff. And it's amazing to hear them talk about it, how expensive some of these things are. And you think, I wouldn't pay $5 for that in a garage sale, and it's worth $100,000, and people just fall out of their chair. It's good TV. Steven Spielberg, several years ago, as we know, had a movie called Raiders of the Lost Ark, and they're talking about the Ark of the Covenant. And quite frankly, if there was a piece of furniture that you brought into the Pawn Stars that they'd really have to call an expert on, if you walked in to the Antiques Roadshow people and you got these two tablets here, I don't know, some kind of gibberish on them, I don't know what it says. Those would be the most, that's the most valuable piece of furniture. And inside of that furniture is the most valuable antiquity that has ever or will ever be. 
If I had anything like that, I would find a special place in my house so that when people walked into my house, they'd be, whoa, you got an Ark of the Covenant? Whoa. You got two tablets by the hand of God given, oh, volume two, that's right, because volume one was broken. I would put that in a place where everybody could see it. But in the history of Israel, there was a time when not only did they not have it in a prominent place, they didn't even know where it was. And not only did they not know where it was, they didn't even have enough value for it to look for it. And that's why when I share about Book of the Law found and we try to bring it into a modern context, that is, we're not now talking about Israel, we're now talking about you. It's amazing how the Lord reveals how functionally illiterate that we believers have become. And we say to ourselves, wow, we protest when the Ten Commandments can't be put on a courthouse lawn. But how many of us have them posted in our homes? We'll get to that later. There was a time when Israel had lost the most important document and furniture in all of history. And tragically, not only had they lost it, but they didn't even value it enough to know that they'd lost it. So they weren't even looking for it. Authentic worship, as God had commanded it, had slowly and systematically augmented or changed. And then it inevitably was replaced with forms of godliness that were being passed off as righteous and powerful. And these forms of godliness eventually pushed God's word and thusly the God-prescribed way for men to worship him into darker recesses and corners of the temple. A temple which was built to house exclusively the Ark of the Covenant and the tablets that the Lord had given to Moses, the law, And now they were in some dark recesses and corners. And not only could you not see them, but over a few generations, nobody was even looking for them. And because the word was absent from everyday life, the individual and thus the whole nation over time had no absolute authority upon which to stand firmly convicted and to weigh right and wrong. I'm sorry, does this sound like the United States today? We live in what they call a postmodern generation. And if there's one idea which pervades postmodernism, it is this. There are no absolutes. What's good for you is good for you. Might not be good for me, but that's okay. I hope you find your own way. Hey, whatever. When times come and they're controversial and it's time for a believer to stand up, what do the believers say? Well, I don't want to cause a, a riff because if I cause a riff, I may give, you know, believers a bad name and then somebody might not come to the Lord. And I was like, well, you don't have to worry about people not coming to the Lord because if you don't share the gospel, they're not coming anyway. So you might as well stand firm and let the Lord through the Ruach HaKodesh, through the Holy Spirit, do the work that he does when the word of the Lord comes in. Amen. Because there was no authority, generations of future leaders were taught traditions and many of which were pagan traditions and incorporated as if they were actual doctrine. And God's spirit was replaced by superstition and feelings. Well, I know the word of the Lord says this, but it just doesn't feel right. So a generation arose that would defend to the death this pagan themed Yahweh worship and base their convictions on rote traditions and feelings. There's probably a place that we wouldn't have to walk very far to get to that if we actually walked in and started sharing the word of the Lord and the truth of Yeshua because of rote tradition, they would run each one of us out. The biblical prophet who is a friend To the godly, even in rebuke. Stop for a second. The biblical prophet is a friend to the godly, even in rebuke. He became the enemy of the state. And to this day, if we stand firm and we declare the gospel, we too become the enemy of the state. Just ask anyone who's ever stood outside of an abortion clinic and said, stop killing people. And perhaps this scenario is what King David was trying to warn us of when he began the book of the Psalms with this exhortation, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. I don't know if you've ever stopped and pondered what David is saying there, but he's talking about a process. And if you start 
with not listening to the advice of the word of the Lord, but you start taking the advice of the world, of the ungodly, you're going to find yourself going in a direction and walking not in the way that the Lord has prescribed, but you start walking in the path of sinners. And then pretty soon you find yourself at a distance from those who were actually godly and seeking the word of the Lord. And if you keep following the advice of the wicked, what happens? See, my Bible's right here. So you're walking away from the word. And then what happens is not only are you standing in the path of sinners, the way that sinners go, but now you find yourself just sitting down in the seat of the scornful. When I say the seat of the scornful, what am I talking about? You're now sitting and you're cemented and you are established and you're looking at people who actually believe in the Bible and want to live according to it and preach it and risk all that they can in order to see people saved. And you look at them and now what are you doing? You're scorning them. Oh man, look at those fanatics. I went to their service one time and they were dancing. They go out there on the streets and they share the truth of the word and they, they're even willing to get beat up every now and then. The last thing I want to be, Lord, is a fanatic. Well, that's what happens when you live your life apart from the word of the Lord. Whether actively or passively, you're now getting your direction from the wicked, from the worldly. And over time, you become, psychologists say, you become like the five people that you're around the most. So over time, what happens is you find yourself just walking in a very worldly, you say, I'm a Christian or I'm a believer in the Messiah, but you start allowing worldly things into your life. And now you're convicted because when you're around people that are actually still following the Lord, then it makes you uncomfortable. So you start trying to find a problem. Well, you know, he's just such a spendthrift. He never spends any money at all. All he does is support these missionaries and he makes us feel so bad when we spend all our money on ourselves. But we work really hard for that money and it makes them uncomfortable. So over time, they find themselves even further away, and now they're just scorning them. And they see other believers, and, and they, they just, they, they, they're always talking bad and negatively about them. I don't know if this has ever been you. I'm just saying that David said that that's what's going to happen. And he begins the songbook of Israel. This is Psalm 1, verse 1. Hey, listen, people, you are blessed if you don't walk in that counsel of the ungodly. Which means what? It means you're blessed if you walk in the counsel of the word of the Lord and you say, I'm going to believe this, whether it feels right or not. And not only that, but I'm going to find myself standing not in the path of sinners, but I'm going to find myself standing. And by the way, Yeshua said it's a narrow path for those who want to live their life according to this. But now over time, you don't find yourself sitting in the seat of the scornful. You find yourself being a, a tree who is producing fruit for the kingdom of the Lord. You see, we can walk it back the opposite way as well. And friends, lest we judge Israel harshly, I would say that the body of Messiah of our generation, that is the church at large, has also lost its biblical true north. And it's largely abandoned the word of the Lord to the point where the Bible is often treated more as a resource in many pulpits as opposed to the source. That is the final word in secular psychology and uh, magazines and literature, these things become the greater source information of preaching. And then they resource the Bible here and there just to prove a point to the point where if you spend many time sitting in those congregations, you spend much time every week. You're like, I see how they use the Bible to prove his point. You know, Desperate Housewives is a really big show on TV. So so let's have a series called Desperate Housewives. It's housewives desperate for time with their family and and housewives desperate for time with their husbands and housewives desperate for time with the Lord. And you realize that, oh, it's just so clever. And, 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 and we're using all these secular sources. And you can see how they use the Bible to prove their points. But you get 10 years sitting under that type of teaching and you say to yourself, that's really great. I still don't know what the Bible says. I know how you use the Bible in order to prove your points. I get it. And I get it every Sunday when I walk out or every Saturday if it's a Messianic congregation. But at the end of the day, I don't know the difference between the first or the second letter to the Corinthians because churches particularly don't have plans to comprehensively teach the word of the Lord so that a person can say, oh, yeah, I go to a congregation. We've read the word. The Apostle Paul warned us that these days would arrive. He says, but mark this. There will be terrible times in the last days. You say, Steve, do you believe that we're living in the last days? Because right now you're clearing the dance floor. I don't want to hear no apocalyptic things about the Lord's coming back or whatever. We'll just hold on. But mark this. There will be terrible times in the last days. People will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, 
ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather uh, than lovers of God, and having, what is it, the appearance of godliness. Is he talking about the world who does not know Yeshua? No, he's talking about the greater body of those people who have come in to the body of believers. Larry was talking about it just last week. Apostasy. Not in the world. That's, that's, that's the world's game. I'm talking about apostasy, apostasy, which has entered into the community of believers. They have the appearance of godliness, but they deny the power. What is the power of the Lord? The Holy Spirit. Who has the Holy Spirit? Well, all people, when they come to a saving knowledge of Yeshua, the Lord gives to them the gift of the Holy Spirit. So if you have the appearance of godliness, that means that you show up at the right time. You do all the things that true believers do. You give some money. You serve. You pass out some pamphlets. You do all these things that believers do. And yet you've denied the power of what a true believer is because only true believers have the presence of the Holy Spirit, the Ruach HaKodesh, in their lives. Adrian Rogers, as I mentioned earlier, was my pastor for many years, and he used to say, you know what, I would like rather for a pastor to stand in a pulpit and be sloppy drunk than to not be filled with the Spirit of God. He said, I would rather that a pastor stand in a pulpit and be sloppy drunk than for him to not be filled with the Spirit of God. Why? Because you can tell when a pastor's sloppy drunk. And just because a person is saying the words of the Lord and just because a person is doing great things, you see building and you see all of these things happening. It doesn't mean necessarily that the spirit is there. It just means perhaps that he's a really good communicator. And it just means perhaps that he knows how to raise money and they're building buildings and people are showing up because they're giving the people what they want, but not necessarily what the Lord prescribes. See, bigger's not always better. At the same time, smaller is not always better. I, I say I have no problem with the small congregation as long as it doesn't want to stay that way. And one of the things that I love about Larry, Rabbi Larry, when I met with him in the early before I came to work here, was what are your plans for Shuva and what is your vision for Shuva? I said, because I know what mine would be. What is yours? He says, well, maybe two, three services packed out each one of them. And then people leaving these services and going out and sharing the truth of Yeshua and seeing a massive revival. I said, I'm in on that. Okay, I will. I want to be a part of that. I'm a high impact player and I don't want to be a part of a congregation that's just happy to sit on the bench, be in the NFL and then retire after a few years of never playing, getting that pension. No, I want to be a part of a congregation that wants to win a Super Bowl, so to speak. Does this make any sense to you? Hopefully that's why you're here as well. Got no problem with small ministry as long as it doesn't want to stay that way. By the way, the passage that I just read was from 2 Timothy 3.5. So let's look at today's passage a little closer. The business of church. 2 Kings 22, 3-9, we just read it. Josiah is a young king. He's eight years old when he becomes king. Eight years old. Can you imagine? We're all looking for a new president. Who's it going to be Newt? I don't know. Is it going to be Obama? I don't know. Is it going to be Romney? I don't know. Who's it going to be? I don't know. Nobody says, is it going to be Olivia Wiggins? Olivia is 10 years old. Well, in Israel at this time, she would have been two years too old. Eight years old becomes king of Israel. You say, why would the Lord do that to his people? Well, maybe to protect him from being raised by a bunch of pagans. So it's like, you know what? Let's have him raised by priests. Let's hide him away in the temple. In the 18th year of this guy, so he would have been 26 years old. They're making renovations on the temple and they're clearing things out. And then what happens is when you when you become bent on the word of the Lord and you start reading the word of the Lord, the Lord does his own cleaning of your temple. He starts convicting you from the inside. Hey, you know what those things you see on the Internet at night when you don't think anybody sees? I see those things, by the way. You say, yeah, I better stop doing that before I get exposed. Well, how about you better stop doing that because it offends me? But we'll start with that. Hey, you know, the way that you're stealing that money. Yeah, he starts to convict you about the way that you're doing those things. And so he starts cleaning house so that there's nothing in his house. It says, you know, don't you know that your body is the temple of the Lord? Temple of the Holy Spirit lives right in there. So he starts cleaning out all those things. Just like Josiah, the Lord starts to put it into his heart at 26 years old. They're cleaning out the temple. 
And what's funny is, is that when you start cleaning out the idolatry in your life, and believe me, we have it, whether it's a car or a big screen TV or whether it's a degree or a, or a dollar amount or whatever it is, there's things which we ascribe power to which belong to God. And when he starts clearing those things and re- shifting your priorities and cleaning those things out, pretty soon the only thing that's left is just you and the word of the Lord and the presence of the Spirit and the knowledge of the covenant through Yeshua. And he's like, now I want to start working through that life surrendered to me. Josiah was doing this in a corporate way at the temple, and they're cleaning it out. And as they're cleaning it out, you start cleaning the idols out of your life, and pretty soon you're like, whoa, what was that? And so Hilkiah finds it. I briefly alluded to it earlier, but offering plates and building projects are not the prime indicators that God is pleased with the congregation. Offering plates and building projects are not necessarily prime indicators that the Lord is pleased with the congregation. Israel was not living by the book of the law to the point that they didn't even know that it was lost, nor did even the priest know or care to look for it. But God, in his sovereign grace, intervened on behalf of his namesake, his people, Israel. Isn't that wonderful? It wasn't a performance-based thing. The Lord revealed first to the heart of Josiah, start cleaning out the temple. In obedience to a very still, I'm sure, and small voice, He says, yes, Lord, I will start doing that. And he starts cleaning it out. They have an offering box. People are giving money to that. This is good. You know, everybody likes a strong leader. And even though he's 26 years old, he seems to know what he's doing. Been king for 18 years already. And so they're doing all those things. And everybody is honorable. I mean, it's not like anybody's stealing money. When the money comes in, they're spending it the, the way that they're supposed to. And the work is getting done. And the building is occurring And God takes our small, faithful response to his still, small voice, and he builds on that, and he adds to that. Now I'm going to show you something you didn't even know that you were looking for. I said start cleaning house, and you started cleaning house. And when you started cleaning house, guess what? There's my word. When we see Yeshua going to Capernaum after he had been kicked out of his hometown synagogue in Nazareth, he goes to Capernaum, and what does he do? He just preaches the word. Interesting, he's the living word of God, as John 1 says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, verse 14. So here is the living word of God preaching the word of God in a synagogue in Capernaum and what was exposed? Somebody in your congregation has a demon. Now, really, do you think that those people knew that there was a man possessed with a demon? Do you think they would have let him into the doors of the synagogue if they said, oh, here comes a demon. Oh, yeah, we have a special seat for demons right there. Any more? Oh, okay, right over here. We we allow them to be here. No, if they knew he had a demon, why in the world would they let him in? They didn't even know it. Why did they not know that there was a demon in their midst? Because the word of the Lord was not there. Oh, they might have had a copy of the Torah. They might have read from it from time to time. But it wasn't used in such a way that it would expose sin. Yeshua shows up, preaches a message. Whoa, first thing we see, whoa, who would have thought, man, John, we didn't know. Whoa, what's up with you? We didn't even know he had a demon. He's just great at a party. It's a demon. And not only that, but the people waited till the sun went down. Why? Because they were, then they saw him heal on Shabbat and they were so, oh, no, what happened? But then that night, sun went down and the Bible says that they brought even more who were demon possessed. You see, when the word of the Lord shows up, it exposes stuff and it brings you to a moment of crisis where you now have to make a decision. You diminish the word of the Lord, then you diminish the crisis. And that's what a lot of churches really want. I don't want no want to mess with nobody. We just want to do our thing and have a killer production up here. I'm going to preach a little. It's going to sting a little, but not a lot. It's a little shot. It's not a surgery. And as they say in churches, they say, if you preach sermonettes, then you'll get Christianettes. And they'll come by the droves, thousands, or perhaps tens of thousands. Because I'm going to tell you, people, the word of the Lord is offensive. It's offensive to every one of us. Why? Because it exposes those things in our life that we're either trying to keep hid or that we didn't even know were there. And now we got to do something about it as if we're not busy already. God in his sovereign grace intervened on behalf of his namesake. Second Peter three nine says this. God is not slow in keeping his promises. Some understand slowness, but he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come into repentance. Those are pretty exclusive terms. And I know that people would debate those terms to some extent, but I take it at face value. The Lord doesn't want anyone to perish. He doesn't want anyone to die not knowing 
and receiving the atonement that is offered exclusively through Yeshua. It's offered exclusively through Yeshua, but at the same time, it's offered liberally to anyone who would turn from their sin and receive it. That means that there's nobody in this room who is so good that they don't need the grace of Yeshua. Because the Bible says we have all sinned and fallen short of the standard of the Lord. But at the same time, there's nobody here so bad that they can't receive it. Nobody's so good that they don't need it and nobody's so bad that they don't receive it. Some people say, well, 2000 years, why hasn't he come back? Let me tell you why he hasn't come back. He's not slow. Second Peter three, nine, as men count slowness, but he's patient with us and he doesn't want anyone to perish, but he wants everyone to come into repentance. And that's you. You have key players here. You have Hilkiah, the priest. Hilkiah, the priest was not looking for the book of the law, but God exposed it. He's just doing the work that he was supposed to do, distributing money to workers and doing his work that he's supposed to do. He was not looking for the book of the law, but God exposed it. Then you have Shaphan, the secretary, and he was not primarily concerned that the book of the law was found, but God disclosed it. Isn't it interesting? We read the text and we see that uh, Shaphan, the scribe, showed uh, uh, it says in verse nine of Second Kings 22. So Shaphan the scribe went to the king, bringing the king word, saying, your servants have what? Found the book of the law. It's amazing. We've been lost it for so long. We finally found it. And this is it. This is the ticket for us. No, what did he do? He just conducted the business meeting. He went to the king and he brought him word, saying, your servants have gathered all the money that was found in the house and they delivered it into the hand of those who do work, who oversee the house of the Lord. And then Shaphan the scribe showed the king saying, Hilkiah, the priest has given me a book. No exclamation point there. No excitement. Hey, by the way, Hilkiah found this book. Check it out. It's really old. I'm reading that into it, but I'm just saying you don't see excitement. Hey, look, why would he be excited? He wasn't conditioned to be excited about it. Are you excited in the morning when you wake up and you say, Lord, I know you didn't have to wake me up today, but you did anyway. Right. Because he didn't wake up other people today. He didn't have to wake me up today, but you did anyway, which means that you have something that you want me to do. And I'm so excited to read your word this morning to find out what is my purpose for today. Do you have that level of excitement or do you just kind of wake up, wake up and then there's that Bible right there next to the nightstand. And you're like, oh, man, alarm clock, snooze. Five minutes later, snooze. Finally, it's like, man, with this alarm clock, get off my back. I would read the Bible if I had more time. Has it just become that to you? It's been that for me in times. Shaphan, no particular emotion. Hilkiah, the priest, has given me a book, and Shaphan read it before the king. So then we have our next player, which is King Josiah. King Josiah was unaware of the book of the law as God had imposed it, meaning that as the Lord had given it and, and, and put it into the history and the life of Israel, Josiah didn't even know this, and he was the king. We remember back that there was a time when the Lord said, hey, someday you're going to want a king. That's OK. I know you're going to want a king. When you have a king, just make sure that you have a king who makes me king. People oftentimes say that in the days of Saul, when Israel wanted a king, that their big sin was that they wanted a king. No, the Lord had said, hey, there's going to be a day you're going to get in the land and you're going to want a king. And when you want a king, he didn't say this is going to be a horrible sin. No, he said, when you want a king, make sure you have a king that makes me king, because if the king doesn't make me king. Well, you're you got problems. And he says, and one of the things that I want to happen is I want for that king and the presence of the priest to write handwrite a copy of the Torah so that he knows the gravity of the job which he has received. And he knows what I require of a king. Josiah didn't know that eight years old. He becomes king because another guy dies at 26 years old. He's lived twice his life already at 26 years old. They're cleaning out the temple. And what happens? But all of a sudden here shows up this book and he didn't know how the Lord had imposed it upon Israel to know and to live according to this. And it's almost like I don't know what section of scripture that he read, but it's almost like as if today somebody walked into Barack Obama's office. I'm just saying that because he's the president right now. Somebody walked into Barack Obama's office and said, look what we found. We're going through the Smithsonian Institution and it wasn't just a Stephen King movie, that thing was really in the Smithsonian. And look at this tablet and look at what it says. Can you imagine? What if they just walked in with a Bible and said, hey, look, look what we found. And look, and they open up the book of the Revelation. Do you see what is coming upon the world if we don't turn to the Lord? And the level of desperation that would, oh, there would be an address to the, to the nation. 
there would be an inquiry. Somebody call Billy Graham. Get him and some other guys up here and let's go through. What does this thing really say? Does it really say that? Is he really going to judge us like this? And then you have hold of the prophetess. Verse 14. So Hilkiah the priest, Ahiakim, Akbor, Shaphan, and Azaiah went to hold of the prophetess, wife of Shalom, son of Tikva, son of Haras, keeper of the wardrobe. And she dwelt in Jerusalem in the second quarter which is right before halftime. And they spoke with her. And then she said to them, thus says the Lord God of Israel, tell the man who sent you to me, thus says the Lord, behold, I will bring calamity on this place, on its inhabitants and all the words of this book, which the king of Judah has read because they have forsaken me and burned incense to other gods that they might promote, provoke me to anger with all the works of their hands. Therefore, my wrath shall be aroused against this place and shall not be quenched. But as for the king of Judah, who sent you to inquire of the Lord in this manner, you shall speak to him. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, concerning the words which you have heard, because your heart was tender and you humbled yourself before the Lord when you heard what I spoke against this place and against all its inhabitants, that they would become a desolation and a curse. And you tore your clothes and you wept before me. I also have heard you. Surely, therefore, I will gather you to your fathers and you shall be gathered to your grave in peace and your eyes shall not see all the calamity which I will bring on this place. So they brought back word to the king. Hilkiah, the priest, was not looking for the law, but God exposed it. Shaphan, the secretary, was not primarily concerned that the book of the law was found, but God disclosed it to the king. Josiah was unaware of the book of the law as God had imposed it. And hold of the prophet, prophetess, pronounced both God's judgment and mercy as God chose it. When I say mercy, what I mean is this. They say that grace is getting something that you don't deserve. Okay. After this, if somebody says, I was so moved by the music and the preaching together, I would love to give you a brand new car. And Lord, let it be so. I really had not done anything to deserve a gift that was so extravagant. That is grace. Getting something that you don't deserve. But mercy is not getting what you do deserve. Okay. If I tell my son, Asher, hey, don't eat the cookies out of the cookie jar. And not only does he get into the cookie jar, but we hear the cookie jar smash from down the hallway. Do you know what he's going to get? He's going to get what he deserves. But what happens if I come there and I see him crying and I see him broken over the remorse of what he's done and I really sense a real repentant spirit in him? Guess what I might not do? I might not give him the punishment that he deserves. I might just give him a timeout. Okay, you know what timeout is? We didn't have that when I was growing up. When I was a kid, we had knockout. (laughs) And then timeout was the time that you were actually out. My brother would be like four Five, he's coming Two. six, he's up. He might need a little bit of commandment number five, but I just give him a time out. Why? Because he didn't get what he did deserve, because I saw the brokenness of his spirit and I actually saw that he was truly repentant. Hold of the prophetess pronounced God's judgment. Hey, this is coming, by the way, and his mercy. But it's as he chose it, not as we demanded it upon him, because oftentimes Christians are believers in Messiah. Believe me, I work for a church, so I'm getting all these things. Just give me grace. Oftentimes they say, Lord, then, you know, I've repented and I've, I've turned from you. So now bless me again. And they demand it. It's just like the, the, the sort of uh, it's sort of like the codependent relationship where you have a guy that beats a woman all the time and then she keeps taking him back. Why? Well, because he was crying and he said he was sorry. And you're like, what? No, that's abusive. That's wrong. He's just manipulating you by crying. We saw this happen with Saul, right? And Saul would cry before the Lord. And the Lord, who judges the intents of a heart, says, no, it's never going to happen between you and me again like you think. And you're not going to manipulate the people by trying to get some kind of a spiritual situation going on here that's not real because you really haven't repented in your heart. David kills a guy. Nathan, the prophet, shows up and he says, hey, I know you killed that guy. The Lord knows you killed that guy. David says, I have sinned against the Lord and the Lord only. And the next sentence, one sentence, the next sentence, yes, and the Lord has forgiven you. You mean he got off? I don't know that he fully got off because he said there was a caveat there. You know, I forgive you, but there's going to be pain because mercy always comes with pain to remind us to not do that again. Grace, totally free. Mercy, you don't get what you deserve. 
but there's a redemptive pain attached to mercy. But the major player of all was the Lord himself, because he's the one who revealed his word again to his people. First Peter four, seven says it is time for judgment to begin with the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel of God? Let's not talk about the second part first. Let's just talk about the first part first. The judgment begins first with us, those of us who claim to be believers. And there are some of us who perhaps actually believe that we're believers. And yet we've never really surrendered our hearts to the Lord. We're doing all the things we're supposed to do. Otherwise, Yeshua wouldn't have said, many will come to me in that day and they will say to me, Lord, Lord. And I'll say to them, turn away from me. I never knew you. The God who judges the intent of the heart knows those who have truly surrendered their will and have put their faith in him and those who just simply are good Christians, but maybe not real ones. These are heavy words. That's why they have the worship leader do it when the rabbi's not in town. And by the way, it's been a pleasure being your worship leader. I hope your next one is fantastic. So let's ask ourselves, because it's good to gauge yourself. Where am I? Nobody really wants to gauge themselves. You want to judge somebody else. When I drove into the parking lot, Leo is our sound guy. He does a great job, doesn't he? Amen. The very first time that Leo came here, we needed a sound guy. And, and, we need, and Leo came here and we walked around. We looked at the equipment. We walked out. He goes, so that's where the Orthodox Jews are over there. And I said, yeah, they're right over there. And they actually share a parking lot, which is cool and bizarre. And uh, he goes, well, what's all that writing up there? Because you read Hebrew. And I said, yeah, I do. And he says, well, what's that writing up there? And I stopped and I stopped back and I looked at the writing up on the. Have you ever seen their building? They have a bunch of Hebrew letters. And I looked at their. And, and I'm not saying I don't don't yell it out. But does anybody know what what that is? The Hebrew writing. If you do, just raise your hand. There's one, two, three, four, five, six. Yeah, I didn't. Either. I tried to read it. I was like, it doesn't make sense. Aleph, Bet, Vet, Gimel, Dalit. Doesn't make sense. It looks like the ABCs to me. It doesn't really look like any word that I've ever seen. And then later, I'm driving back. I'm like, Wiggins, you idiot. In Hebrew, there's no numbers. Those are numbers, and they counted up to ten. Why? Because it's the Ten Commandments. You got one column, you got another column, and you got these. Have you ever noticed that? At least you left here knowing something. Basically, their building says one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. It's not their address. It's the Ten Commandments. Years ago, I was in Bangor, Maine, and I had been asked by a lumberjack a guy who preaches a, ch- a church full of lumberjacks in Bangor, Maine. I'm not going to say his name, but he says he, he talks like one. Steve, would you come preach to our guys and release some music? I said I'd love to come preach to you guys. Man, I got a church full of lumberjacks. I can tell. I go there, I get off the plane, they put me in a car, they drive me into the woods. I get out of the car, he's like, I had a family member die, I need you to go do a graveside with me. I said, Ken, I don't work for you, man. What are you talking about? He said, come on, man, get in the car. So we get in a Jeep, not a car, no top, old. So we're driving to some country cemetery, and I went out and we did a thing. And he says, I said, well, when am I going to teach now? He goes, well, uh, yeah, we moved your slot, so... uh we got somebody else teaching that now. I need you to teach communion. I said, well, I hadn't prepared that message. He said, well, the Bible says to be ready in and out of season. <laughs> to give reason for the hope that is within you. Great. So I get there and the lumberjacks, they had a tailgate lunch. I'm not kidding. I'm not building this up to be something that it wasn't. They had a tailgate lunch. They didn't have it catered in like most churches would or something. There's a tailgate lunch and all these lumberjacks sitting on the back of their big four by fours. And I'm sitting with the pastor with a plastic fork eating a steak bigger than my head that they must have might have been roadkill. Who knows? But it's like so I'm sitting here eating this steak and, and he turns to me and he's like, hey, you need a knife. And I was like, yeah, but, you know, I didn't find any little knives. Well, I ain't got no plastic knives. You need a real knife. And he reaches in his pocket and he pulls out his pocket knife. And it's like a machete. This guy's such a man. And he's like, here you go. And I was like, really? Because I'm like, really? And so I'm sitting here with, the, with a little plastic fork in one hand and a machete in the other hand. And this is the most manly church I've ever seen. 400 men and every one of the messages as I sat was this huge rah-rah. We're going to take the world. We're going to do this. We're going to take the family. We're going to all this stuff and we're going to win this all back. And I was very impressed. And so I got up and I said, "Okay, listen, guys, let's do this right. On the back of the thing, there was a huge sword was on the back of the church. And it said, God's uh, I said, God, 
on, on, on one side, and then going down it said sword. So, it, so really what it spelled was what? God's word. God's word. God's sword. That was their whole emblem. And of course, I mean, I was eating with a sword and, and with lumberjacks, and I'm just such a not that guy. And so, um, so we're here and we're doing this, we're doing this whole thing. And he says, uh, he says, uh, 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 you know, do communion. I said, okay, well, before communion, let's do this. If you've been a believer for more than two years, stand up. Boom. I mean, they just all stood up. Wow. This is an on fire group of savvy, motivated believers. I said, wow. I'm looking at the God swords back there. And I said, man, this is okay. I said, okay, let's do this right now. Ten Commandments, okay? If you if you don't know the Ten Commandments, just sit down. Because what I'm going to do is I'm going to start pointing at guys. And because and, you guys have God's word, right? So I'm going to start pointing at guys. And when I point at you, I'm just going to say, number one, and just yell it out. And I'm going to point to you, number two. If you don't know the Ten Commandments, just sit down. Whoosh. A third of the room sat down. Okay, I can work with two thirds. I said, okay, we're going to do them in order. And then every one of them sat down. Even the pastor. I'm not going to put you on the spot because I have to come back here next week. <laughs> but I could tell by the sweat on most of your brows that you're like, oh, Lord, don't let him let us be the example. But if I did, do you know? him? I mean, we're a Messianic congregation, so we should spot the numbers outside of the Chabad Center. That should be like, oh, yeah, Ten Commandments, whatever. We know the one who's the living word of the Lord. I mean, you should have a response for that internally, but we don't. So we're going to work on your Hebrew. But the next part is this. Do you know? I mean, I'm talking about just the basic. How many commands in the Torah? It's 613, right? It's a lot. Let's just start with the 10 overriding principles. And most people who call themselves believers couldn't name six of the 10 commandments. And so far, we've peered into Israel and we've thrown a couple of stones at the church at large. But what about us, Shuva? You see, Charles Spurgeon, who's a pastor from many years ago, has a lot of famous quotes, but here's one of my favorites. There is enough dust on the Bibles in England to with one's finger write the word damnation. There's enough dust on the Bibles in England to, with one's finger, write the word damnation. Could it be said of the Bibles in Irvine or the Bibles at Shuva? And where did it go wrong? I think it starts with the individual. The individual left God's word. Listen to what Deuteronomy 6, 1 through 10 says. We, we recite the Shema, but let's read before and a little after it. This is the command, the statutes and the ordinances that the Lord your God has instructed me to teach you. This is Moses talking to the people of Israel so that you may follow them in the land that you are about to possess. Do this so that you may fear the Lord your God all the days of your life by keeping all of his statutes and commands that I'm giving to you, your son and your grandson, so that you may live a long life. Listen, Israel, and be careful to follow them so that you may prosper and multiply greatly because the Lord your God. The God of your fathers has promised you a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. These words that I am giving you today are to be where? In the back seat of your car until next Saturday. No, they're to be in your heart. Repeat them to your children. Don't take your kids to youth group. Let youth group be at your house. Talk about the word of the Lord. Teach them the things of the Lord. And then when they come to youth group, let them teach other kids. Talk about them when you sit in your house and when you walk along the road and when you lie down and when you get up. Bind them as a sign on your hand and let them be a symbol on your forehead and and write them on the doorposts of your gates. You see, the individual first has to leave that command and then the government will follow, especially in a democracy, because in a democracy, the individuals choose the government. A group of individuals makes a community. A, A group of communities makes a constituency. And the constituencies, they, they elect the leaders. So when the individual walks away from the word of the Lord, then it spreads like cancer throughout the community. And it starts with little liberal ideas and little liberal things. And then it becomes just as just as the way we do things. I don't care what the Bible says. This is a different time and a different day and a different age. Well, listen, we don't use society to determine how irrelevant that the Bible is. We use the Bible to determine how far our society has come from the Lord and his standard. So first, the individual has to get back to the word of the Lord. Who is the individual in this room? It's us. It's you and it's me. Then the government left first Kings two, one through four. And as the time approached for David to die, he instructed his son Solomon. As for me, I am going away of all the earth. Be strong and brave and keep your obligation to the Lord to do what? To walk in his ways and to keep his statutes, his commandments, his judgments and his testimonies. This is written by the law of Moses. 
so that you will have success in everything that you do and wherever you turn and so that the Lord will carry out his promise that he made to me. If your sons are careful to walk faithfully before me with their whole mind and heart, you will never fail to have a man on the throne of Israel. If we, starting with our generation, will be the generation which returns to the word of the Lord. And don't just be the I-centered generation, iPod, iPad, iBook, I, me, mine. But how's about we live lives of patriarchs that says, you know what, I don't think I'm going to get what I really am looking for in my lifetime. In business, they say that if the vision is big enough to be accomplished in your lifetime, it's too small. And we have to live a life in such a way that, as John Maxwell says, success is defined by the successor, that if we weren't here tomorrow, not only would the organization do well, that is this messianic community, but would it thrive in our absence? Does this make sense? So it starts with the individual and then the individual moves into the government. Now we had a problem. First Kings 11, one through three. We don't have to get, but nine chapters later, when King Solomon loved many foreign women in addition to Pharaoh's daughter, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women from the nations that the Lord told the Israelites about. The problem wasn't where these women were from, as far as where they come from, because Ruth was from where? She was from Moab, right? You look at Matthew chapter 1, and you see the four women that are mentioned, and where are they all from? They're all Gentiles. So the problem is not that he loved Gentile women. The problem was that he loved women who didn't love the world, uh, that didn't love the Lord. And so they brought with them their ways. They didn't say, your God is my God and your people are my people. They said, yeah, I love you and you're a really powerful guy and you look really great in that robe and let's do this. And then they just brought with them their pagan ideas and thoughts. Don't intermarry with them and they must not intermarry with you because they will turn you away from me to their gods. You know why? Because partying is way more fun than following the Lord. You say, how could you say that? I can't believe you're up here in the pulpit and you're saying this. Because it's true. Partying is more fun than following the Lord in the short term. But Moses knew something that we could all learn, which was this. The Bible says in Hebrews that Moses came a point in his life where he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer the afflictions of his people than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. And if you are a Christian who's making day trips to Egypt and you're flirting with worldliness, stop. If you fully embraced it, let go of it and start walking back towards the Lord through his word. Because I'm going to tell you right now that worldliness is like foreign women. And when I say foreign women, I don't mean foreigners, but you know what I mean. I've already said it. The individual left the Lord's word. The government left the Lord's word and worship had left God's word. So how do we get back? Well, first, the individual has to act on what the Lord has exposed. Even here this morning, we have to humble ourselves and confess and we have to follow in a diligent pursuit of the Lord's word. We have to follow by obeying it and adhering to his commands, not so that we can earn our salvation. But if we've truly been saved, then we should have a gratitude in our heart, which says, I can't wait to wake up this morning and get into the word to see what the Lord has for me so that I can know what is it that he requires of me not to earn my salvation. But what does he require of me so that I can live a life which honors him in thankfulness for all that he has done for me. Does this make sense? We have to renew our covenant with him. Doesn't mean we have to become saved again, but rather we just have to say, you know, my wife and I, a few years ago, we'd gone through a rough time at about year seven. And at about year 10, we found ourselves in Israel at the Jordan River. And I said, you know what? I was at a gift shop. I said, Misty, you know, this is a, actually she said to me, this is the anniversary because it's always the woman telling the man of when you asked me to marry you. I said, well, if I asked you again, would you marry me again? And she goes, I don't know. You should ask me again. So I was at a jewelry counter and I turned around and bought a fairly cheap ring. And I just said, hey, you know, I'm going to buy one of these and I get one for myself. And I, I said, I got down on my knee in a gift shop and she's like, oh, get up. I said, would you marry me again? She goes, yes. I said, let's do it tomorrow. So we're with a friend of ours, Ben Alpert, and he did a little bit of a ceremony right there at the Jordan River. And we were baptized again. 